Well, amen, huh? Good morning. Welcome to Cornerstone Bible Church. A couple things here I want to um, draw your attention to. My friend, I feel like I'm a little on the hot side back there. A little bit. In the bulletin, take your bulletin and look in there. Make sure that you see the uh, uh, um, uh, summer's missions or the, I guess it's the spring break mission trips for a couple of young ladies for Crease and for Savannah. I want to draw your attention to that and uh, see if the Lord would uh, put on your heart to help them and support them in that. Uh, and then um, uh, tonight, uh, we have John and Jean Anderson from uh, uh, Elkhart, Indiana. They're our, our missionaries with Sunset Solutions. Uh, we've known John and Jean for a number of years, and I'm excited uh, about their uh, ministry. It's a, a little different. It's a technology-based uh, mission. And so if you are an engineer of some sort or uh, come from that kind of background. It might be exactly what you're looking for, especially if you're a college student. So I know that they're at the university this last week and they're going to be here tonight, stay after, and I think they're going to go to snack uh, tonight also. So you have lots of opportunities to speak with them, but I'm excited about their uh, ministry, their friendship, and thankful that they're here with us uh, uh, today. And and then uh, come back at the conclusion of the second service. I'm going to have a little special recognition. So that's all I'm going to tell you at the moment, but please come back. Um, once, if you're downstairs and you hear the piano playing, uh, start making your way up here and then you're just going to have to file in and, and find a place to stand at the conclusion of our second service. All right. Now, before we get started last fall, we had, um, a new members class and we had 18 individuals who attended the class, turned in their application for formal membership here at Cornerstone Bible Church, and the elders have either heard their testimony or had a chance to read them and are recommending them for formal membership. However, because of the busyness of the holidays, right, the end of the semester and all that kind of stuff, we never had an opportunity to finish the process. So these folks have been tremendously gracious uh, with us, with me, and, and I'm thankful for that. So as our tradition, I read the names, and just in case there's some biblical reason that you're aware of that we as the elders are not aware of, that why to any one of these individuals should not be granted a formal membership, I give you a little bit of time, then you can go to that person in this upcoming week, as in uh, Matthew. 18, express your concern, and then seek their uh, biblical restoration. Then uh, after doing that, if the issue is not resolved, uh, then you can bring it back to uh, our attention. But unless there's some compelling reason, uh, some compelling biblical issue, we're going to bring these individuals up next week. I'm kind of speeding it up here a little bit because the process has just uh, lingered on so long. So we're going to bring them up next week, Lord willing. We're going to affirm them for membership as they covenant together with us who are already members of Cornerstone Bible Church. So here are the names uh, that have attended uh, the class and are asking to join informal membership. Uh, Josiah Baum, Zachary Craig, Haley Dunn, Ryan Dunn, Meredith uh, Fox, Seth Fox, Alyssa Griffith, uh, Josiah Hatfield, Rebecca Hopkins, Charlene uh, McNutt, Scott McNutt, Teresa Miller, Diane Passage, Stephen Passage, Adderay Slagle, uh, Emily Thomas, Richard Thomas, Del Whipke. All right, so we're excited for all those folks. Uh, so again, if you're on that list, uh, you need to be here at the end of the second service. That's when we'll do our, our, our membership, uh, uh, bringing people into membership into the second service next week, Lord willing. All right, let's stop and pray. Our Father, uh, we are thankful uh, for an opportunity to meet this morning and to hear from your word. 
And Lord, this morning I pray especially with the the topic that you'll help us to think clearly and biblically and that uh, we will be encouraged by your word uh, because you want us to know the truth. And so we're just thankful for an opportunity to gather this morning and and to study together and to honor you and to honor Christ. And, And we pray to that very end. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, welcome back if you're a college student. I see more and more of you uh, coming back. We're glad to have you with us. I have a lot that I want to get through this morning. Uh, usually uh, between either finishing up a book or the end of the semester, you're towards the Thanksgiving, Christmas time when everybody's traveling, uh, and before the whole new school year starts up again, uh, I always like to intersperse a few topical sermons in order to cover some uh, material that we just don't have a chance uh, to look at, especially when we're in a long series, just like we have been in an in-depth uh, study for the last three years or so, I think, uh, in, in the book of John. And obviously, we just finished that up towards the end of uh, last fall. So over the past few weeks, I've done that. Uh, We've spoken on several topics I think are important. We looked at our love for Christ out of Revelation chapter 2 and what we should do when we find our love for Christ growing cold. Uh, We uh, spent a couple evenings looking at the issue and the importance of discipleship, what that looks like, how that should be... uh, how we should go about doing that. And the fact, if you're a believer in Christ, uh, then you are compelled uh, by way of obedience and love for Christ to be in a discipling relationship with someone else. You should be intentionally doing others good uh, on a spiritual level. Uh, Last Lord's Day morning, I spoke of the importance of the ascension. And I pointed out the fact that we and the church spent a lot of time speaking about the Lord's birth, obviously, the incarnation of Christ. We talk about his life, his death, his burial and resurrection, again, rightly so. But sadly, we don't spend a lot of time uh, speaking under the issue of the ascension and understanding the importance of that and what it means. And so that's what we did last week. And, and again, the, 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 the ascension is, is vitally important. I, I gave 10 implications uh, of the significance of the ascension, and I'll just give you the headings here. That the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ signifies, here it is, uh, the completion of our Lord's work on earth, that everything he came to do, he accomplished. So the completion of our Lord's work here on earth, uh, the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ signifies or means <coughs> his earthly limitations are over. And I talked about some of those. Uh, it, it marks his exaltation and his coronation. It signals the fact that he's sending the Holy Spirit. It started the work that he promised that he would do, that he would depart and go and prepare an eternal home for us. The ascension of the Lord Jesus marks the passing of the work of evangelism onto us as his followers. It signifies his headship over the church. It marks his triumph over Satan. And it marks the start of his high priestly prayer, or high priestly ministry. And lastly, the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ assures his return. It assures his second coming. And because Christ is coming again, he's promised we in the church, we as followers of Christ are to be living in the light of that imminent return of Christ at any moment, right? The imminent return, meaning he could return at any moment. So we need to be living obedient, holy lives, looking for the soon coming return of Christ, wanting to be found faithful when he does come back for us and living until he returns for his glory. So if you missed any of the last few weeks, that's what you uh, missed. And you might want to go back and pick some of those things up because I I think you'll find them uh, helpful and challenging. Now, last fall, uh, when we were coming to the conclusion of our study in uh, John, the book of John, we came to a passage in John chapter 21, and it caught my attention. So look there very quickly. Um, We're not going to be here long, but this is really, and I told you about this a few weeks ago. This this caught my attention. John chapter uh, 21, uh, verse 18. 
John 21 verse 18 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you to where you do not wish to go. Remember I told you that's Christ's prophetic uh, uh, announcement to, to Peter, that one day in the future when, when Peter, who has uh, um, uh, denied Christ three times and has been restored, one day in the future, Peter, as an old man, uh, he's going to be martyred uh, by way of crucifixion. But then this is the, the text that really caught my attention, verse 19. Uh, you get kind of John's editorial comment. Now he said this signifying by what kind of death he, Peter, by what kind of death Peter would glorify God. And when he'd spoken these words to him, he said to, said to him, follow me. That little phrase, by what kind of death he would glorify God, again, really caught my attention. And, and so this is what I want us to think about this morning. Stop and consider the fact that, that as believers, all of our life is to be lived glorifying God, even when it comes to the issue of our death. By what, what kind of death he would glorify God? Have you ever stopped and considered the fact that your death is an opportunity for you to glorify God? Now, obviously, sometimes death comes upon a sudden. Sometimes death comes at the end of a, a long uh, uh, illness, prolonged illness, perhaps. But have you ever given consideration to the fact that your death is an opportunity for you to glorify God? It's important for us as believers to do so. So I want to speak on that very issue. I want to speak on the issue of glorifying God in death or what death means for the believer. Because again, sometimes I fear we're too caught up in the thinking of the world and don't always see that the time of our death is also an opportunity for us to glorify God by how we face death and what kind of confidence we have in the one whom we say we have put our trust in for our eternal future. So I think it's an important issue for us to consider. If we really believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that he literally died but rose again from the dead and has now ascended to the right hand of the Father and is alive forevermore, then it has to affect the way we live. It has to affect not only the way we live, but it has to affect the way we look at our own death. I'm convinced of that. Because as believers, we're committed to glorifying God in how we live. Therefore, we have to be committed to glorifying him in the way that we die. Because the truth is, dying is a normal course of life here in a fallen world. And unless Jesus returns by way of rapture for his church, death is coming for each and every one of us in the room. So we should think carefully about it. We should think biblically about it. We should prepare for its eventuality in a fashion that honors and glorifies both God and Christ. Now, I do realize that we have a lot of young people in the room and a lot of young people in the congregation, a lot of young college-age students, and the truth is probably most of you have never stopped and considered the reality of your death. But sadly, there's also a lot of older people in the room, and most of us who are older, we've never really stopped and considered the reality of our death, but we all should. It has been said very well, no man is ready to live until he is ready to die. No man is ready to live until he's ready to die. Because the reality of the fact is we live in a fallen world and death is all around us. So to live properly, to set the course of your life in a right direction as a young person or even as an older person, the remainder of your life, you have to live with a purpose and a view to the certainty of your death. And then obviously the uncertainty of its timing. Uh, no one knows when it will happen. 
Martin Luther once said this. He said, even in the best of health, uh, we should have death always before our eyes so that we will not expect to remain on this earth forever, but have one foot in the air, so to speak. Jonathan Edwards, who is known uh, by many as perhaps uh, uh, America's greatest theologian, known for his involvement, obviously, in, in the Great Awakening. As a young man of 19, he sat down and penned 70 resolutions or 70 convictions on how he would spend his life. And each every week, he went back and read through those over and over again to kind of keep his life a better focus in the right direction. Resolution number nine as a 19-year-old. Resolution number nine, resolve to think much on all occasion of my own dying in the common circumstances which attend death. Again, you can't live life properly in this world unless we're ready to face the issue of death because the Bible says the wages of sin is death. The Bible says all have sinned. The wages of sin is death. The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Therefore, death is an issue for every single man. Death is a reality. So again, as believers, we have to be committed to glorifying God in our lives. Therefore, with great intentionality, we need to consider how we will live, how we will glorify God when it comes to the issue of our own death. Now, we know that the world, for the world, death is an absolute terror and for the non-believer. The, the world around us that doesn't know Christ, they're in utter panic over the issue of death. And they do everything they can to all costs to try to avoid it, even to the extremes. But the truth is, as believers, we should have no fear in death. We should have no fear of death because we placed our hope in Christ. We placed our hope in the one who we confidently assert that he literally, Jesus Christ, literally physically defeated death and literally physically rose from the tomb. Right? We don't get to chapter 21 in John until we get to chapter 20. And chapter 20 is the resurrection of the person of Jesus Christ. So we have confidence in that historical reality. Hebrews, the writer of the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 2 verse 14 says, Since then the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, speaking of Christ, likewise partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might deliver those who fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. So as believers in Christ, we're set free from the fear of death because of the person of Jesus Christ and his power over death. Again, John chapter 11, we spent a lot of time, that great chapter in John 11, uh, 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 Christ uh, to, to Martha, the sister of Lazarus, uh, just before the Lord raised him from the dead, he said to her in uh, John 11 verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Next question, do you believe this? Right? Do you believe this? Paul in Romans 8, verse 9 says, You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So once we come to faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit of God indwells every believer, again, who genuinely repents and places their faith in Christ. If there's no evidence of his presence, no fruit that he produces, as it says in Galatians 5, 22 and, and so on, fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. If those things are not a mark of your life, then you have no legitimate claim to Christ as Savior because that's, that's what the Holy Spirit does in the life of a believer. Right? So if you're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, Romans 8 verse 10 says, and if or since Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. 
uh, he, he's speaking about the doctrine of regeneration. Right? Regeneration. Verse 11 says, But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead, listen, will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who indwells you. Verse 11 there, Paul's talking about the Holy Spirit's presence in our life guarantees our physical resurrection. The Holy Spirit's indwelling presence in our life guarantees our physical resurrection. This life is not all there is for us. There's more for us when these bodies stop working. Again, it's the doctrine of glorification. Doctrine of glorification or the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead. And it's a vital doctrine uh, that brings unbelievable hope and encouragement uh, to the believer. It's a very practical doctrine for all of us who've lost a a loved one. And we've stood beside a grave of someone whom we've loved. To know with absolute certainty that the one whom we've loved and have lost in death, the one who has uh, turned to Christ, they are now safe with him in heaven. Second uh, Corinthians 5.8, absent from the body, present with the Lord. But not only that, not only do we know that they're safe with him in heaven, uh, but we know with absolute certainty the Bible declares this fact that one day that loved one will rise from the dead with a gloriously new physical body, a body fit for eternity. And that's because of the historical reality of the fact of Jesus Christ, the fact that he defeated death and rose physically from the grave. Therefore, all those who place their faith and their hope in him, likewise, are going to follow him in a new resurrected body. That's why Paul told the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13, we don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, the euphemism for dead, or who have died. We don't want you to be uninformed about those who have fallen asleep, that you may not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. We have hope. We have tremendous hope. We have the wonderful, glorious hope of the final victory over death in the grave because Jesus Christ victory over death in the grave. So it's just a tremendously encouraging doctrine. The resurrection of the righteous dead, the the fact that God is going to raise our mortal bodies from the grave just as he raised Jesus Christ uh, from the grave. Uh, Again, uh, a doctrine that reveals God's goodness and gives us hope and and, and encouragement. Therefore, again, for us as believers, we need to see the fact that our death is the last, perhaps, the the last and perhaps the best opportunity we have to give bold, courageous testimony of our belief and our trust in the person of Jesus Christ. Death is the single greatest opportunity for us to prove the reality of our faith as death is going to usher us into the very presence of the one whom we love supremely. It's going to take us into the presence of God and Christ in heaven and all of its perfections. So we have to think biblically on on the issue of death. So what does death mean for the believer in Christ? What does death mean? Well, we all see the reality that death is all around us. Old and young die. The, 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 one of the things that's constant in this world is the death rate is constant. Right? It's 100%. Right? 100%. One out of one people dying. But what does that mean for the believer? What happens to the Christian who dies? How should we look at death? What should be a, our view of death as a believer? So I'm going to begin by answering this question, just what is death, right? What is death? I think the first thing we have to realize is that death is not the end. Death is not the cessation of existence. 
That's a common view held by the world, that when a person dies, it's just over, right? They, they, no, longer let, they no longer exist, they just go out of existence. Uh, it comes to an end completely. But that's not the biblical teaching of death. In fact, the Bible teaches the very opposite. Death, according to the Bible, is simply the separation of the body and the soul. Our souls, uh, the real us, uh, functions in union with our, our body. So when we die, when these physical bodies die, there's a separation. The body is taken away. It goes to the morgue, goes to the funeral home, uh, and it's going to be later buried in the ground. There it remains. But the real us, the soul, is eternal. And once God creates a soul, a living soul, that soul lives on forever. All to whom God has given life live forever. It's true of the holy angels and righteous men. It's also true of fallen angels and wicked men. There's no such thing as people going out of existence. It's called annihilationism, and it's not true. It doesn't exist. It's not a reality. God created men in his own what? Image. Did I read out of Psalm 90 this morning that there's one who's before the foundation of the world, the eternal being, right? So God creates us in his own image. The one who is eternal creates man in his image. Therefore, man is also eternal. Now, the body, the mortal aspect of us, is given over to corruption and decay because of sin in the world. But the soul, the real who we are, lives on forever. That's what the Bible teaches. Now, you can see that in a number of different texts in the, in the Scripture. I'll just read you a couple of them, just kind of give you the general idea. Luke chapter 12, verse 4. Our Lord is speaking. He says, you say, and I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after you have no more that they can do. But I warn you whom to fear, fear the one whom after he's killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. He's saying, look, the death of your body is not your, is the least of your issues. All right. The cessation of the, of the working of your body is the least of your issue. There's someone who's eternal that you're going to have to face. You better fear him. The one after he's killed has authority to cast you into hell. Read the same kind of parallel passage in, in, in Matthew 10, verse 28. Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both a soul and body in hell. Again, you need to fear the eternal one because this life, once your body ends, it's not over. There's still more to come. So see, you see the reality of that uh, eternality, that, that, the, the truth of eternality, that life separates us from the body, but life is not the end. Uh, you see that over in Luke chapter 16, uh, the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man dies, the poor man dies. Uh, they both leave their bodies behind. But their souls, they, their, their existence remains uh, separated from their body. Uh, Luke uh, sixteen twenty two. now it came about that the poor man, which was Lazarus, died and he was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried in Hades. He lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. So, so this is the separated state from the body and the soul. Uh, the body's in the grave, the soul, the spirit, it, the, the inner you, the real you, eternally created, eternally in existence, or eternally created by the eternal being, has an eternal future. Uh, therefore, the body and soul are separated, but you aren't. You don't go out of existence again. So then what happens to that soul? What happens to the soul, the eternal reality of you? Well, because it's eternal and created in the image of God, it lives on forever. And it lives on forever in the condition that it entered eternity. It lives on in the, in, forever in the condition it, in, 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 it entered into eternity and remains there, that way forever. There is no such place called limbo. Uh, there's no such place uh, as purgatory. Uh, there's no intermediate state. There's no holding tank, uh, uh, if you will, to give people a second chance to get right with God. The body dies. It goes into the ground. The soul goes on to a conscious eternity. 
And again, it remains in that condition that it entered eternity forever, awaiting a resurrection of the body. Listen to uh, Revelation 22, verse 11. Let the one who does wrong still do wrong. Let the one who is filthy still be filthy. Let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness. And let the one who is holy uh, still keep himself holy. So whatever you are when you enter into eternity, that's what you're going to be forever. So if you're the one who is doing wrong, you're always going to be wrong, doing wrong. If you're the one who's filthy, you're always going to be filthy. The unrighteous are going to forever remain unrighteous. Nothing is going to change once you take your last breath and step into eternity. However, if you are among the righteous, uh, again, not righteous of our own, but righteous borrow, righteousness borrowed from the person of Jesus Christ, uh, then you'll remain in that state forever. Uh, Revelation fourteen thirteen, I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Second uh, Corinthians 5, 8, I, I just alluded to it. Uh, absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So the death of the righteous man uh, means that he's going to go into the presence of, of God and in the presence of Christ, at home with the Lord. But, but again, for the wicked, for, for the unrepentant, uh, for the non-believer in the person of Jesus Christ, death is an utter tragedy. An utter tragedy and a horrific reality. Proverbs uh, 11 verse 7, when a wicked man dies, his hope will perish. Proverbs 14, 32, the wicked in his thrust uh, the wicked is thrust down by his wrongdoing, but the righteous has a refuge when he dies. The righteous man, when he dies, he has a refuge. He has a refuge in God, uh, in his presence, but the wicked man doesn't have that. All hope is gone for the wicked. They're in the process of perishing. Now, death for the wicked is called the second death. You see that in Revelation 21, verse 8. And it's described in language as eternally, eternal punishment. You see it in Matthew 25, verse 46, and other places. Matthew 25, verse 41, as eternal fire that has been prepared for the devil and his angels. So death for the unrighteous, the place of death for them is always described as a place where the worm does not die and a fire is never quenched. Second Thessalonians 1, 9 calls it eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. Revelation 14, 10, the unrighteous will drink the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength of the cup of his anger and will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the lamb and the smoke of their torment goes, goes up forever and ever and they have no rest day and night. Again, Revelation 20, verse 10, 20, verse 15, 21, verse 8, all talk about being thrown into the lake of fire, tormented day and night forever and ever, thrown into the abyss, the place of outer darkness. So for the wicked, for the unrepentant, for the non-believer, death is an absolutely horrendous, terrifying reality. Terrifying beyond description. It's to enter into the place of wrath, God's wrath. A place of eternal anguish. Producing everlasting weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. Literally a horrific thing. Again, there's no probationary period. There's no purgatory for the wicked. At the moment of death, who you are, that's where you'll be for all of eternity in a state of eternal, conscious, spiritual, physical torment. Now, why do we die? Some people believe that death is just part of life in the, in the world. I, I was in a uh, hospice setting one, one time, and, and a, a person passed away, and the family was there, and, and the uh, nurse said, well, it's just part of the circle of life. 
That's not very good theology because that's not true. It's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches death is an enemy. The Bible teaches that death is not part of life as God created it in this world. The Bible teaches that death is an existence because it's the punishment for sin. Death is never normal. Because again, when God created man, he created God to be in unity, body, soul, and spirit with God forever to enjoy fellowship with him. But the Bible teaches that death was introduced in the world because of sin. Uh, when God told Adam, uh, Genesis 2, verse 17, From the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you shall surely die. And because man is in rebellion against God, you see the same thing in uh, Genesis 3.19 when, when God is addressing the, the disobedience. It says, uh, uh, Genesis 3.19, You are dust, and dust you shall return. Romans 5, verse 12, Paul says, Therefore, justice through one man's sin entered the world, therefore death through sin, so death spread to all men because all have sinned. Again, 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Death is here because of sin. Death came by way of sin. It was introduced by God as punishment for sin, as there was no death until man sinned, and there would have been no death if man had not rebelled and sinned against God. But again, the Bible says, Romans 3.23, all have sinned. All have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God. Again, all of us in Adam are his offspring. Uh, we are therefore sinners, sinners by birth, sinners by practice, sinners by divine declaration. We are offspring of Adam. We are all under the penalty of death. Hebrews 9 verse 27, Inasmuch as it's appointed for men once to die, and after this comes the judgment. Uh, again, for the, uh, the, for the wicked, death is really an absolutely terrifying experience beyond description where they'll face the wrath of God, and again, an eternal, conscious, spiritual, physical torment. But for the Christian, Romans 8, verse 1, there's what? There's now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We're no longer related to Adam. We're related to Christ. If you're a believer in Christ, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Christ bore the penalty. So for the righteous, death is only physical. For the righteous, death is only physical. It's not spiritual. Because the Bible speaks of death for the righteous always with phrases like this. Uh, it's called eternal joy, eternal peace, eternal glory, eternal rest, eternal life, communion with God that never ends. Uh, Matthew 13, verse 43, the righteous will shine forth as the sun in, in the kingdom of their father, he who has an ear, let him hear. Uh, Psalm 16, verse 11, that will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand is pleasures forevermore. And again, Second Corinthians 5, 8, absent from the body present with the Lord. Now, where is the Lord presently? Well, if you were here in our Ascension series, you could answer that question very easily. He's at the right hand of God in, the, of God in heaven. That's what he says. Paul says in Philippians 1, 21, for me to live is Christ, but to die is what? Gain. The world doesn't look as death as gain. The world sees death as nothing but loss, terrible loss. And normally we go to the greatest extents possible to hang on to life as long as possible, which I think is good because as believers we should love the life that God has given to us. And in this life that God has given to us, we should want as many opportunities as possible to serve him in time. But on the other hand, the believer realizes that death is not the end. Death is not the end. Death is just the entrance into eternity, into the presence of God in Christ. 
That's why Paul goes on and says, Philippians 1, verse 23, I am hard-pressed from both directions, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. If I'm here, I want to have fruitful service, but, and I want to be a help to you, so I'm hard-pressed. You know, I, I want to help, but I have a desire to depart and, and to be with Christ, because that's much better than life in this fallen world. Now, as that kind of the introduction, I want to show you a couple different passages. And because I'm going to go to two, I've got to kind of, kind of move through them kind of quickly. So look over at 2 Corinthians. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And again, we kind of have to work through it rather quickly. Paul, when he's writing this letter, he's facing 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. When, when Paul's writing this letter... Uh, he, he's facing tremendous persecution. His life is in danger always. L- literally facing the potential of death at, at any moment because the hostility uh, um, uh, is, is so great against him. But he had great confidence to face death. He had great confidence to face death because he had great confidence in the Word of God, the promises of God. And his life displayed hope and courage though even though his life was literally in danger on a daily basis. Verse 1. For we know that if this earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For we know. It speaks with a a settled reality. Uh, Again, based on the promises of God. Uh, For we know that if this earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, the torn down the the word tent is is a metaphor for uh, our bodies our physical bodies paul's a tent maker right he's using an analogy Uh, earthly tent he's referring to our physical physical body so man's body his earthly tent is fragile right it's fragile it's temporary one day he said it's going to be torn down katalau dissolved disunite dismantled destroyed we know that if uh, the earthly tent which is our house is torn down. Here it is. We have a building from God. Now, it's another metaphor, the, the building. Uh, a tent is uh, movable. It's temporary. It can rot very easy, but a, bur- a building is more permanent. So he says we have a building from God. We have something more permanent, more secure. Uh, again, he's speaking about the reality of the, of the resurrected body of the believer. Uh, the book of Romans, you remember, was written shortly after Second Corinthians, and Paul is expressing his longing uh, that he had to be for this glorified resurrected body uh, and, and he speaks of that reality that uh, the, the when the universe was created and fell into sin the whole world was subject to futility and, and then he says one day it's going to be set free from its slavery of corruption uh, romans 8 verse 21 and in that glorious day paul is longing for believers will experience it says in, in romans 8 verse 23 the redemption of our body so Paul is longing for a glorified body, uh, not just that it would be set him free from physical weaknesses in his body, from physical defects, but the whole world is negatively affected by sin. And Paul longed for his glorified body because he wanted to be set free from sin and all of its negative effects. Uh, again, in, in Romans 7, he writes this, I am flesh sold into bondage to sin. Uh, um, uh, verse 14, uh, verse 17, sin dwells in me. Uh, evil is present in me. Verse 21. Verse 24. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? Uh, everything has been corrupted by sin, the physical universe and our bodies. So Paul longed for heaven. He longed for the hope of his, his glorified, resurrected body so he'd be set free from, from sin and its, and its corruption. 
For we know that if this earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. A house not made with hands signifies something that's not physical, something that is spiritual, something that is transcendent, uh, uh, eternal again, uh, not physical, not temporal, not earthly. Again, he's talking about this building that's physical, the, the, our, our resurrected bodies. And our resurrected bodies are going to be vastly different from these dilapidated, sin-infected physical bodies that we're in now as offspring of Adam. So as offspring of Adam, we have these physical bodies, but those who belong to Christ, who've stepped out of the realm from uh, of condemnation as a genuine believer in Christ, one day we're going to have a body just like his. We're going to have a body just like Christ. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians 3 verse 20. He says, Our citizenship is in heaven from which we are we eagerly await for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the extension of, or by the exertion of his power that he is, he has even to subject all things to himself. Uh, John, the Apostle John writes in 1 John 3 2, beloved, we're not, we are now uh, now we are children of God and has not yet appeared as what we shall be. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we'll see him just as he is. What kind of body did Jesus have? Perfect, resurrected, glorified Christ, right? He has, as Jesus Christ comes out of the tomb, uh, resurrected, the, the glorified, resurrected Christ, he has a body different from the old one. He has a body that is now fit for eternity. A real body, but different. Remember, he passes through walls just showing up and the door's locked and he's just there. But, but at the same hand, he, he's able to eat uh, with them. He's able to be touched by them. Uh, he's able to be felt by them. He, he's a real body, not a, not a spirit. Again, verse 2, Indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. So again, Paul wants to be, although he's in the, uh, uh, facing death all around him, he, he, he wants to be free from this body of death. He wants to be free from sin. He wants to be free from all the frustration and the sickness and the wickedness of this world and those things that are affecting his body. And he longs to be with Christ in heaven. He, he longs to put on the perishable. Or the imperishable, right? He wants to, he wants to replace this perishable with the imperishable. He wants his, his mortal to put on immortality, as he says in First uh, Corinthians fifteen fifty four. In this house, in these physical bodies, we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. Now, if you're an English person, you go, "Well, he's mixing metaphors." That's okay. He can do that. He's the Apostle Paul. Okay. The dwelling from heaven again. He's talking about resurrected body. His resurrected body. So he longs for heaven. He, he believes with great certainty that one day he's going to enter into glory and all the perfections of eternal life are going to be forever replaced, the sin and the corruption uh, that he was experiencing in this world and in his body of flesh. He's going to be set free from his fallenness. He's going to be set free from his uh, sinful humanity. So Paul, again, he's facing death from all kinds of enemies all around him. He didn't fear death. He longed for heaven. He didn't fear death. He longed for heaven. Likewise, every Christian can face death courageously and confidently because we know that the next body that we have is going to be infinitely better than this one. Amen? Eternally perfect, eternally free from from, uh, corruption uh, and and sin. Again, verse 3, inasmuch as we have... We, having put it on, will not be found naked. 
He's basically saying, look, we're not going to be disembodied spirits. Uh, the highest level of Greek uh, thought uh, meant that you could be freed from these bodies and just be kind of ethereal spirits uh, floating out there uh, because of a, a spiritual dualism that they taught that the body was, was bad and spiritual things are good. He said, look, we're not going to be naked. We're not going to be disembodied spirits. We're going to put on and be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. He says, we're going to be having a new, real, literal, physical, heavenly, eternal building from God. Verse 4, for indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan being burdened. Again, he's he's speaking about how much he's longing for heaven. He wants to be free from the crushing burden of sin that has affected uh, all of us here in the fallen world. Uh, And affected, again, our our physical beings. He's saying, look, we should yearn. Uh, for this next body to come. We should yearn for our spiritual bodies. We do not want to be unclothed, but be clothed so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. So again, one day these mortal bodies are going to be done away with, swallowed up by eternal life with bodies fit for eternity. Verse 5, he says, Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave us the Spirit as a pledge. A tremendously important verse. He who prepared us for this very purpose is God who gave us the Spirit as a pledge. Because in eternity past, God, by His loving kindness, by His sovereignty, chose us to believe in Him. Right? He chose us to be believers uh, for, for salvation. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, right? Ephesians 1. Right? God chose us from eternity. He redeems us in time for the purpose not just that we are justified, declared uh, positively righteous, not guilty, in time. But he did all of this for the purpose of our glorification. That's the purpose. Again, not just that we'd be saved in time, but that we would be saved throughout all eternity future. And the fact that the Holy Spirit dwells within us is a pledge of the promise to guarantee that reality. It's the first installment, if you will, the down payment. The indwelling person of the Holy Spirit is God's promise of his ultimate purpose for the believer, not just for time, but for eternity, that it will be fulfilled. Those whom God calls, those whom God saves, he has promised to take us to glory. So again, life for us here in this world is not all there is. These bodies that are failing us now are not the body that we're going to have for eternity. The resurrection of the person of Jesus Christ guarantees that. Christ Jesus' physical resurrection guarantees our physical resurrection. The indwelling person of the Holy Spirit, His presence, guarantees that nothing will ever interrupt God's plan for us. Philippians 1.6 He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Remember that great statement in Romans chapter 8, verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, just as, as it is written, for thy sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered, but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced... Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall ever be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The presence of the person of the Holy Spirit 
guarantees God's eternal call in time as we repent and place our faith in Christ that our eternal future is absolutely set. Nothing will separate us, not even death. Who can can separate us from the love of of Christ? The answer is nobody. Verse 6 here in our passage says, Therefore, always being always of good courage. Uh, The verb means cheerful, to have joy, to be confident. Always of good courage. And Paul's going to use the word again down in verse 8. But here again, Paul's facing death, and he is of good courage. He's not fearing death. He's looking forward to, to heaven. Death is no threat to him. Death for him, from a biblical perspective, because he believed in the person of Jesus Christ who conquered death, death for him is a welcome friend because death is going to take him to where he'd rather be. Death is going to take him where he'd rather be in the presence of Christ. Death is going to make him what he would rather be, where he'd rather be, and then what he would rather be, free from sin. And that's what death is going to do for the believer. It's going to make him just like his Savior. Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we're at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord. So again, the Lord gave us life in this world and we should hold on to it. We should share it, cherish it. But, but as believers in Christ, those who have tasted of the mercies of God and his redeeming love, like Paul, we should long to be with our Savior. We should long to be with our Lord. We can face death with great confidence and it's not that we don't love our loved ones here. It's not that we don't love our uh, the people that we're here with in time. But the issue is we just love the Lord Jesus more. We, we long to be with him. We long to be in his presence. We want this earthly separation to end. We want to be in our father's house. We want to be in our father's presence. So again, we can be freed from these bodies of death, freed from this world of sin, and have unbroken, intimate fellowship with God in Christ. Verse 7, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We walk by faith. Now again, remember what the writer of the book of Hebrews says about faith. It's not some kind of wishful fantasy. Now the writer of the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 11.1 says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. We walk by faith. We have assurance. We have conviction. Not based on us or any kind of personal intuition, but based on the Word of God. This is what God's Word says. And we believe what God's Word says. We have confidence in the Word of God. We walk by faith and not by sight. Verse 8, we are of good courage. I say and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. We prefer to be absent from the body to be at home with the Lord because that is the very purpose, listen to me, that is the very purpose that God has prepared us for. That is why he has given us the person of the Holy Spirit as a pledge of our inheritance. We who know the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior are destined for him in eternity, to be with him in eternity. It's emphatic. He who prepared us for this very purpose is God who gave us a pledge. The Spirit is a pledge. So while we're on earth, we're away from the complete fullness of God's presence. He says again, prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. So again, the Christian longs for heaven. The Christian hopes for heaven. 
and all the fullness of fellowship with God, whom he has never seen yet he loves, and to a place he's never seen yet believes in, because he knows that God is real. He knows for certain that God is real. In his presence, there's fullness of joy. That place exists. Therefore, the Christian walks by faith, not by sight. Verse 8 again, therefore, we're of good courage. Always. Verse 9, therefore, we we have also as our ambition, whether at home or to be absent, to be pleasing to him. So Christian, no matter where they find themselves, still on her, here on the earth or again in the presence of God's fullness, has a desire, his ambition is to be pleasing to him. Because again, in Christ, we realize that we have something the world doesn't have. We have hope. Tremendous hope. Heavenly hope. He- heaven, he- heaven is our home. Heaven is where the other members of the family of God are. Heaven is the place where our Savior is. Heaven is the place where the Father is. All of our loved ones who've gone before us in Christ, that's where they are. The Bible says our citizenship is in heaven. The Bible says our reward is in heaven. The Bible says our treasures are in heaven. Our eternal life is in heaven. Peace is in heaven. Eternal joy is in heaven. The Bible says our names are written down in the Lamb's book of life. They're in heaven. And because of that, we have hope. That's why Peter says in 1 Peter 1.13, Therefore, gird your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You have a future hope. You have a now hope. You have a future hope because of the person of Jesus Christ. And we're to fix our eyes on him and completely upon him. And completely on the grace of God to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The promise of future grace when he again returns for those who belong to him. And for us who believe the truth, thus for us who have Christ, we have hope. The author of the book of Hebrews says, Hebrews six nineteen, this hope we have is an anchor for the soul. It's an anchor for the soul. So as believers, we don't fear death. We're not moved by fear. Jesus Christ has conquered death, both for himself and for us who follow him. 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verse 54, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where's your victory? O death, where's your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. Thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has taken the sting out of death. Jesus Christ has taken, taken the sting out of death because he conquered the grave. We don't fear death. We realize that death is the entrance to the very presence of God in Christ. It's the very entrance for us to glory. And it's the very purpose for which God has eternally called us, carried out in time, so that we would be with him forever. And death just takes us there. So again, the believer don't, doesn't fear death. Death uh, again, uh, the fear of death belongs to the unbelieving world. Uh, the un- unbelieving world does everything possible to, to, uh, to avoid death. And with modern medicine and all those kind of things becoming a, a reality for all of us, I think it makes things a little bit more difficult at times. There's all kind of medical, ethical issues, religious issues. I think that has to be thought through and considered with advanced modern medicine. And while I think there's nothing wrong whatsoever in trying to seek to extend our lives with proper medical uh, procedures, 
uh, when we face uh, life-threatening illnesses. I mean, God has given that wisdom to the physicians, and so I think we should take advantage of that if it's reasonable. But again, as believers, we have hope not based in medicine. We have hope based in the confidence of the person of Jesus Christ. So we realize that death for us is not the enemy like it is for the unbeliever. So when it comes to modern medical procedures, a general rule, if you will, is if the medical procedure will not restore a person to life but only prolong the process of dying, then probably it should not be used. As a general rule, if a medical procedure will not restore a person's life, a person to life, but only prolong the process of dying, then probably it shouldn't be used. Now, I think that makes sense when you consider death from a biblical standpoint. If the whole medical process and procedures only prolong the process of death, not restore life, then why do it? Because again, for the believer, death is the doorway into the presence of God. Death is the doorway that leads us to a time of eternal rejoicing. Now, God, the world doesn't believe any of that. That's why the world does everything they can to prolong life. And they do everything they can to prolong life because they know they're guilty before a holy God. And they know that they're going to give an account to him. They know that at death, they're going to face him in judgment. And rightfully so, they're absolutely terrified of death. But we don't fear death. As believers in Christ, we understand that for every believer, there's hope in Christ. And as a believer in Christ, we understand that there are four great redemptive acts in all of our lives. And this is the second <clears throat> scripture I wanted to show you through. And I'm going to go through this one even faster. So <clears throat> go to Second Thessalonians. There are four... <clears throat> great redemptive acts. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. <clears throat> Four great redemptive acts that occur in our life. Second Corinthians or Second Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 13. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this he called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Did you see him? The four great redemptive acts. We should always give thanks to you, or thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because, number one, God has chosen you. God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. It's a doctrine of election. Four great redemptive acts in a believer's life. Number one, the doctrine of election, right? God has chosen you. Again, before time, because of his tremendous love and mercy and grace and kindness, he determines to call sinners to himself, to save fallen sinners in time like you and me. God has chosen you from the beginning, second act, for salvation. For salvation. The word salvation just speaks of the doctrine of, uh, of justification. So it's true. We're born guilty. We're separated from God. We're worthy of eternal condemnation. But God in his great love and great kindness sends Christ into the world to be our substitute. He made him who knew no sin to be sent on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Right? He, he's chosen you for salvation. God justifies us as sinners in Christ 
And he justifies us as a gift of his grace through the redemption, which is in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the sinless substitute, takes God's wrath against our sin uh, at Calvary's cross. And through faith in him, all who believe, all who repent and believe, are going to receive pardon from sin's eternal penalty. Granted peace with God. Granted right standing. That's justification. Third act. We shall always give thanks to you, <clears throat> brethren, beloved of the Lord. He has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. Here's the third act. It's called sanctification. Through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. So sanctification is the process of being separated from sin. Justification is a one-time forensic act, court, barroom, uh, the bar of God, the courtroom of God, declared not guilty, positively righteous in Christ. But sanctification is being separated from sin. It's a lifelong process, a progressive walk of life with Christ. Uh, being separated and more separated and more separated from sin, being more made and conformed to the image of Christ. Again, a lifelong process of obeying him, serving him, honoring him, glorifying him, loving him. So you have election, justification, then sanctification. Then the fourth act is glorification. Verse 14. And it was for this he calls you through our gospel, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So again, glorification simply means the believer enjoys being in the presence of his Lord Jesus Christ forever and ever in all of his glory. Glorification is actually the final step, right? The final separation from sin. And, and, uh, and all the way, uh, the, and, and the way that a believer enters into glorification is through death. That's again why Peter says, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you with the revelation of, of uh, Jesus Christ, fix your hope on gra- grace. Fix your hope on Christ. Fix your hope on the grace of God's kindness, uh, the grace that elects, the grace that justifies, the grace that sanctifies, and the grace of God that one day will bring you to glory because the grace of God glorifies. Listen, if you're a believer in Christ, that's where we're all headed. We're all headed to glory. We're all headed to a place where, again, we'll never deal with the issue of sin. So every believer who dies in Christ, goes from election to justification through sanctification all all the way to glorification, to to enjoy the presence of God in Christ forever. And all the benefits of being there, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more suffering, no more sin. And again, when a believer dies, he becomes completely like his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Again, as much as redeemed humanity can be, uh, again, that passage in John 3, verse 2, uh, uh, 1 John 3, verse 2, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet we shall be, that we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. We should be like him. We'll see him just as he is. Romans eight twenty nine. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. This is staggering truth. Stop and think about this. This is why you were born. Every person in the room, this is why you were born. If you're a believer in Christ, you are predestined to become conformed to the image of the Savior. Predestined to be conformed to the holiness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Marked out in eternity past to be an object of God's divine love, God's mercy, God's kindness. All because of the most amazing, wonderful love of the Father.
who sent his son, the dear Lord Jesus Christ, into the world to die in our place. This is why he called you through our gospel, that you may gain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the hope of every believer. We're going to go to glory forever with our Savior, standing in his presence, forever in heaven, singing the hallelujah chorus, but before the Lord Jesus Christ, whom we love, forever praising his name. Again, if you're a believer in Christ, this is why you were born. This is what happens to the Christian who dies. There's no fear. There's no concern with the issue of death because the Christian who dies lives on forever in a glorious eternal future with Christ, worshiping Christ. So what you need to really understand and the reality of your life and time is one of the reasons I read Psalm 90 at the beginning is God's plan for your life is not 20 years, 30 years, 40, 50, 60, 70 years, 80. God's plan for your life is eternity with him forever. It's eternity with him forever, forever in his presence. That's God's plan for your life. Because death is not the end for the believer. Death is merely the beginning. So for the believer in Christ, death is not a sad event. It's a joyous occasion because it's death that ushers us into his presence of what God has prepared for us to eternally enjoy with him. Now that does not mean that we don't mourn. It doesn't mean that we don't grieve a loss. We do because that's natural. Even with understanding the future, the wonderful future glory ahead of us, death is still an enemy. It's not the way that God made the world. Death robs us of the presence of our loved one. And death is a proper, or grief is a proper expression of emotional sorrow over death. Grief is proper, uh, a proper expression of a real loss that hurts. Even again, knowing the future. Now, the scripture never condemns grieving for over a righteous person who dies. In fact, it, one of the things I think is so compelling about the John uh, 11 passage is that Jesus, uh, even knowing that he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, he still wept with Mary and Martha over their loss. Again, he knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. So there's a time to mourn. There's a time to weep with those who weep, as it says in Romans 12, verse 15. It's not wrong. It's not unspiritual to grieve or weep over the death of a loved one, especially as you consider the suffering or the hardship they may have gone through prior to death. Stop and think in uh, uh, Stephen when he's uh, stoned there in Acts chapter 2, Acts uh, or Acts chapter eight verse two, uh, we read devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. So their sorrow demonstrated a genuine grief that they felt over the loss of the fellowship uh, they had with someone whom they loved. It wasn't wrong for them to do that. Death is not a natural part of the world that God has created. Death is here because of sin, and death is a great enemy. And listen to me. Sometimes the doctor can't fix what's wrong with us. There will come a time when that's true for each and every one of us. The doctor won't be able to fix what's wrong with us. 
going to come a time for all of us where the doctor's not going to be able to make things better in these bodies because the evil of death will be present. And pretending it's not there or dealing with it in some kind of false, fake optimism won't make the whole thing go away. We need to think biblically on this issue. The issue for the Christian is we don't grieve as those who have no hope because of the truth of the doctrine of the resurrection of the person of Jesus Christ. We have great hope, great victory. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 24. When this perishable will have put on imperishable, this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Verse 57, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is our victor. Again, at death, our bodies may go on the ground, but our soul goes in the presence of God, uh, followed by, in God's timing, the promise of our physical resurrection. We're absolutely assured of that because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Listen, Psalm 23, you're familiar with it. And again, because Christ conquered death, we don't fear death. We don't worry about death as the unbelievers do. Because for death, for us, as we pass through, right? Psalm 23, it's the valley of the shadow of death. I remember reading a number of years back uh, an event in the life of a man named Donald Gray Barnhouse, a great faithful pastor, at the death of his wife. Uh, she died relatively young. They had small children. Uh, on the way back from the funeral, Barnhouse and his children were traveling on a two-lane highway, and a large semi-truck passed them going that direction. They're going that direction. And you know how that happens. The big noise and the wind rush and the shadow of the truck passes over their automobile. And with great wisdom, uh, Barnhouse asked his children, would you rather be hit by the truck or, or the shadow of the truck? To which the children responded, obviously, the shadow daddy. Upon which Barnhouse says this. He says, that's exactly what happened to your mother. Death for her is only a shadow because the reality of the hope we have is that Christ has defeated death. Isn't that good? Death for the believer, it's a sad occasion mixed with tremendous joy because, again, we know the wonderful truth of what Christ has prepared for us who love him. So that's why Paul says, for me to die is what? For me to live as Christ, to die is gain. He wanted to be in the presence of a Savior. But whether he lived or died, his goal was just to honor the Lord in everything that he did. He wanted to be faithful in his life. He wanted to be faithful in his dying because he realized that perhaps he could bear witness to the hope of the gospel and he was ready to go at any time the Lord would call him. And that's how we should be as believers. Always being ready to bear faithful witness to the saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, as believers, we should think about our death and we should do Pray that God would give us the ability to die well. Face death with confidence in the one whom we put our trust in throughout our entire lives. That will give you a great opportunity to glorify Christ on your way out into his presence. So again, death for the believer is the last and perhaps best opportunity we have to give bold, courageous testimony of our belief and trust in the person of Jesus Christ. And we know, right, that God causes all things to work together for good, even the time of our death. 
that passage in Romans 12 where it says, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living, holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Verse 2, do not be conformed to this world. We've got to start thinking across the board on every issue as believers. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. So again, Paul says in Romans 12, 2, we have an opportunity with the renewal of our mind to think about death properly. To look at our own death from a biblical perspective, the promise of the resurrection and what that means for us, so that we may prove what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. The year's 2000. For some of you who weren't even born, uh, many of us remember this name, uh, James Montgomery Boyce. The year 2000, James Montgomery Boyce, a, a pastor, uh, receives word that he has cancer. It's been discovered in his liver. And he encourages congregation to trust not only in God's sovereignty, but in God's goodness. And rather than praying for a miracle, he encourages his congregation to pray that God would be glorified through his suffering, which is the way that God glorified himself through the life and death of his son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, through his suffering. And with a very, within a very short amount of time, just amazing, four weeks, four weeks after diagnosis of cancer, the cancer is so aggressive that Boyce uh, is taken into the presence of the Lord. He leaves the earth. One week after he's diagnosed, he stands in his pulpit, 10th Presbyterian Church of Philadelphia. And he speaks to the congregation about his cancer, and this is what he says. If I would reflect on what goes on theologically here, there are two things I would stress. One is the sovereignty of God. That's not novel. We talk about the sovereignty of God here all the time, forever. God is in charge. When things like this come into our life, they are not accidental. It's not as if God somehow forgot what was going on and somehow bad slipped by. God does everything according to his will. We've always said that. But what I'm impressed with mostly is something in addition to that. It's possible, isn't it, to conceive of God as sovereign yet indifferent. God in charge but doesn't care. But that's not God. That's not God. He's not the only one who's... Uh, in charge, but he's also good. And everything he does is good. And what Romans 12, 1 to 2 says to us is that we have an opportunity by the renewal of our minds that is how we think about these things actually to prove what God's will is. It says it's his good, pleasing, and perfect will. He says, is that good, pleasing, and perfect to God? Yes, of course, but... The point is that it is good, pleasing, and perfect to us. If God does something in your life, would you change it? The truth is, if you change it, you would make it worse. It wouldn't be as good. So that's the way we want to accept this situation and move forward. Isn't that good? All the way to the end, just trusting in the purpose, the goodness, the kindness of God. And all we have to do as believers is look to the person of Jesus Christ, and we can see our God is good. Amen? We can see that he loves us. So like James Boyce, we just all trust in the sovereignty and the goodness of our God, and we let God be God. Trust the one who loved us, the one who gave his son for us, the one who came and stood in our place and defeated sin and death, rose from the grave on our behalf, the one who's promised to take us to glory and to be with him forever. We just keep our eyes focused on him so we don't fear death as believers. But we do realize that our death is perhaps the single greatest opportunity for us to prove the reality of our faith. 
as we realize that death is going to usher us into the presence of the one who's loved us, whom we love supremely. Death will take us into the presence of God and Christ in heaven with all of its perfections forever. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for this look into your word and thankful for the great hope we have in the person of Jesus Christ who indeed conquered death. Help us to walk by faith. Help us to trust your word always, to look always to Christ, to have our minds renewed by truth and not be taken out by the lies of the world. Help us to honor you in all things. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Again, I remind you to come back at the end of the second hour for a special presentation. All right? Lord bless.